Interesting how God works as we were singing the songs this morning and and um, Lee's prayer and what I want to share today all kind of, I believe, go together. Um, and uh, it's amazing that we, uh, we worship and serve a God who knows much better than we what we need and what we need to hear and so on and so forth. So the last couple of times that I was here, it seems like I've been here frequently um, over these last months, and I'm not complaining. I enjoy it. I enjoy it a lot. I really do. really enjoy your smiling faces and your fellowship and, and your attentiveness to, to the Word. Uh, first, I think uh, back in June, we, we were in the Old Testament the last couple of times I was here. We were in Samuel and then in Kings, and I'm still hanging out back there, but I thought I'd change it up a little bit and jump over into the New Testament this time. Um, so if you've got your Bibles with you, um, I'd like you to open up to James chapter 2. Um, interesting um, portion of Scripture. Um, many commentators view the book of James uh, as a wisdom, as a sort of wisdom literature, much like Proverbs and Ecclesiastes of the Old Testament, except James has a Christological view of, you know, he, he has already, as the brother of Jesus, he has a view post-Jesus uh, where the Old, um, where the Old Testament, uh, uh, writers of Proverbs and Ecclesiastics were looking forward to him. And so, um, uh, I think, for me, anyway, and I'm not, I, I sort of lean towards that thought. There are some who might uh, disagree, and that's fine. Um, I don't think it takes away from the Word. Um, but I do think that it helps me uh, to understand a little better. Uh, James, at times, can seem to be a little bit disjointed kind of goes kind of around and, and uh, is not necessarily written as a letter, uh, much like Paul's epistles um, are to a certain group or to maybe to a certain situation. But James seems to be, um, James seems to be wanting to speak to Christians um, who are in the midst of just a lot of turmoil and a lot of things that are happening. Um, again, um, there are those who think it was written about 60 A.D. and then those who think it was written about 20 years after Jesus was uh, had uh, been crucified and resurrected. Um, but he's writing to Christians in Jerusalem um, and in and in Israel and whose background is is much. Uh, in the in the Jewish and Christian Jesus uh, Christ um, followers, and so I think, um, especially in this portion of Scripture that we're going to read today, um, he is speaking to people who are struggling under persecution. How do I live like a Christian in these times? How do I live a Christian life in the midst of everything that is going on around me? And so I think he wants to write to those who, 
who are who are faced with that. And I believe that's what makes this book very relevant to where we are today. Lee mentioned it, and if, unless you live under a rock, uh, you see it in the news. You see a division. You see dissension. You see um, persecution. Maybe not persecution to death, but yet persecution uh, in that we, uh, the way our ways, the way that we believe, um, is being attacked and constantly coming under criticism and coming under fire. So as we look at this this morning, I want us to kind of look at, at it through a glass. Um, and maybe it's the glass um, of where you are and where I am today. So beginning in verse number 1 of chapter 2 of James, I'm reading from uh, the New American Standard Bible. If you'd like to stand, that's fine. If you don't want to stand, that's fine as well. I understand. But we're going to read the first 13 verses of chapter 2 of the book of James. My brethren, do not hold your faith in your glorious, in our glorious Lord Jesus Christ with an attitude of personal favoritism. For if a man comes into your assembly with a gold ring and is dressed in fine clothes, and there also comes in a poor man in dirty clothes, and you pay special attention to the one who is wearing the fine clothes, and say, you sit here in a good place. And you say to the poor man, you stand over here, or you sit at my footstool. Have you not made distinctions among yourselves? And become judges with evil motives. Listen, my beloved brethren. Did not God choose the poor of this world to be rich in faith and heirs of the kingdom which He promised to those who love Him? But you have dishonored the poor man, and it is not the rich, is it not the rich who oppress you and personally drag you into court? Do they not blaspheme their fair name? The fair name by which you have been called. If, however, you are fulfilling the royal law according to Scripture, you shall love your neighbor as yourself. You are doing well. But if you show partiality and are committing sin and are convicted by a law as transgressors, for whatever keeps, whoever keeps the whole law yet stumbles in one point, he has become guilty of all. And he who said, do not commit adultery, also said, do not commit murder. No, if you do not commit murder, but do commit, excuse me, no, if you do not commit adultery, but do commit murder, you have become a transgressor of the law. So speak and so act as those who are judged by the law of liberty. For judgment will be merciless to the one who has shown no mercy. Mercy triumphs over judgment. You can be seated. That's a mouthful. James is kind of like all over the map a little bit there. But I think if we unpack this and dig into this, we'll see um, that there's a purpose for the way that this has been written. And as we look at it this morning, um, we um, I want us to see how it relates to us. 
how we um, can become the people that God wants us to be, not only when we're inside these four walls, but when we're outside these four walls. He has called us to be His people, to be His voice, to be His helping hand to those uh, whom uh, the world and whom maybe the church has shunned. In his book, Populous Saints, Howard Snyder recounts a story of Benjamin Titus Roberts. Now, I don't know if that name means a lot to folks. He was the founder of the Free Methodist Church. And in the 1970s, or excuse me, 1970s, in the 1870s, uh, just after the Civil War, he would ride the trains, and because of his relationship with conductors, oftentimes he would get a spot uh, in the first class coach of these trains. And as slavery had only begun to be undone for about the you know ten years or, or fifteen years, it was still fairly fresh in, in, in the memory of many people. Um, there was a group of ten well-dressed young African-American men and women who entered the first-class coach of the train that uh, B.T. Roberts himself was riding in. And as these young passengers got into the train in the first-class coach, immediately there were those who began to uh, give their uh, response, which wasn't very pleasant. Uh, to the idea that these young uh, black men and women uh, were in the same coach that they were in. A passenger stood up in the car and strongly objected them being there and suggested that because of the color of their skin they should ride in another train, car. Another passenger grew more outraged and began berating them, refusing to ride in the same car as them, all the while using vehement racist language. At this point, B.T. Roberts stood up and intervened. Though no one knows exactly what he said as he rebuked the belligerent man, his words must have been convincing because the angry passenger sat down and the young African-American men and women remained in the first-class section of the train for the remainder of their trip. It appears seating arrangements must have been on the front of James's mind as he wrote this letter. The idea that somehow, because of outward appearances, some people were uh, deserved to be treated differently than others. In this case, he talks about the rich, the rich who come in and. They have rings on their fingers and robes and, and they're, you know, suddenly all eyes turn to them. And suddenly the idea that maybe because of how they look on the outside, regardless of what's going on on the inside, they deserve a better place. And then he speaks of the poor man. The poor people who would come. And rather than being shown 
the same attention or giving the same uh, uh, treatment because of their appearance. They were told to either sit on the side or sit on the floor or sit at someone's feet. I think what James was getting at is the idea that we are very quick as people to judge others at first glance. I've known people who said, well, I'm a pretty good judge of character and I can tell by looking at somebody this or that. And to that, I, yeah, okay, whatever. But what James is trying to get across here is the idea that God loves and has died. Jesus has died for each of us, no matter what our status, our color, or anything in life. He sees us for who we are on the inside, not necessarily for what we appear to be on the outside. So I want to take a look at three or four things real briefly. Not going to, not going to be, not going to go long. But I want to share some thoughts as I feel that God has led me to share uh, this morning from this portion of Scripture. The first one is this idea of showing partiality. It was interesting this week, and I didn't pay a lot of attention to it, but I did watch some and listen to some of the, um, I'm not even sure, it wasn't really officially a court. Uh, There was no one being tried, but they were talking to both um, the the new justice that's uh, being questioned and, and then also this young lady who had stepped forward and said that something had occurred in a previous life. I'm not here to discuss either side of that. But what I am here to say is it's interesting how quickly we can fade to hate. How quickly we can move to the hate side of every argument. Whether you're a Democrat, you're a Republican, or whatever your your feelings are, um, we are quick to get and to grab hold of a opinion based solely on what we might have seen or might have heard. Um, we don't know. We don't have the facts. Maybe we will never have the truth. Maybe we will never have the facts. But the idea is that, and I have to be very careful for me, so as I go through this this morning, I'm preaching to me as much as I'm preaching this way, I'm preaching this way. And it's very easy to gravitate to one or the other opinion, without really knowing anything about the facts. It's interesting that the word that is used in the Scripture this morning, the idea of favoritism or partiality, actually comes from a root word. Our English description of this word, uh, of this idea of partiality, often comes across a bit benign. It's not really um, as it was used, at least um, in this in this uh, scripture we read this morning. How does simply showing partiality or respect for a person call into questions whether we really truly believe in Jesus? You see, favoritism is far more sinister and threatening than our simple personal. Preferences. In other words, 
The word that is used here is a compound word that refers to the face or the outward appearance of something. So, just by looking at that pew, I have now, uh, I have now gained a, uh, uh, referring to that appearance of that pew. And so, I just look at, I don't know how it was made. I don't know who made it. I don't know how much time was put into making it. I don't know how long it's been there. I don't know anything about that pew, only that it sits right there. Okay? So I look at something, but then the second part of that compound word that's used here in the Scripture uh, refers to taking hold of or seizing it. So in other words, I love that pew, though I know nothing about it. Or I hate that pew because I know nothing about it. But yet I know nothing about it. I don't know how it was made. I don't know where it came from. I don't know its past. I don't know its future. I know someone who does, but I don't. So my tendency is to say, wow, I like that. Another example. That's that's probably kind of a a rude, crude example. But let's say, and I can do this because I've been married to her for 42 years. This is my wife. I see her, she's beautiful, I love her, and I know her. Okay? But if I look over here at, I gotta be careful who I do this with, because I might get in trouble. I look at, I, <laughs> I look right up here at this gentleman. I, I, I know you by look, I know you by face, I'm, I, I apologize I don't remember your name. Bill, but I look at you, you're a good looking gentleman, uh, you, you know what, but I don't know you, so I really shouldn't have an opinion of you. I sh- you know what I'm saying? Am I confusing you? In other words, it becomes very easy for us to look at something, please, no offense, man. I look at this black man back here in the back, the black gentleman. And my mind could go wherever it shouldn't go just because I saw something on TV that related to something that happened. I could do the same thing with any person. It's not meant, it's, it's nothing is meant really. But it's easy for us. It's part of who, it's part of what sin has done to us. Sin has corrupted us. Sin has corrupted our view. And so therefore here, what, what James is saying is that when we show partiality to a person who's rich or poor or Republican or Democrat or black or brown or white, we are not really being who God has called us and Jesus Christ died for us to be. Amen. Does that make sense? Yeah. Okay. So, so when we, James is saying... When we show partiality, we are muddying the waters and we are not portraying and representing the Jesus Christ who died for us. And we'll get a little bit more into that in a little bit as we go down this. So to show partiality, to take hold of something for its face value without knowing anything about it or about them is wrong. And that's what James is saying. He's saying it's wrong. 
Don't do that. For them, it was the most, the, the, the illustration that he used was the most prevalent. Uh, they were in the midst of, the Christians were in the midst of a difficult time, uh, about 60 BC, uh, 60 AD, and there was a lot of persecution and death and people being thrown to the lions and this and that and, and, and struggles and, 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 and hunger and homelessness. And all of these things that was going on. And he was saying, hey, when these folks show up in your church, don't treat that rich guy. Don't begin by thinking, hey, what can this guy do for me? Hey, can this guy, uh, you, know, maybe I, you know, maybe he'll give a few bucks for this ministry. Or maybe he'll do this. Or maybe he'll, his being here will attract others and so on and so forth. Yet when the poor person shows up, we just relegate him to the side because we think he has no value. We think he, he, he can't do anything for me. I don't think he has anything to offer. And that's something we have to be careful of as Christians. That's what James was talking to, and then we just have to bring that up and relate it to where we live today. It's easy in our Christian worldview as we are constantly being inundated and attacked by a non Christian world view to find ourselves being drawn into a line of battle that we shouldn't be involved in. Second thing I want to talk about is the sin of favoritism, and it kind of falls along the same way. The poor are more than they lack. <clears throat> Say that again. The poor are more than they lack. The rich are more than they have. Those who would imitate Jesus must not be seized by the face of things. Those who would imitate Jesus, those of us who would imitate Jesus, should not be seized by the face of things. Appearances should not be our judging stick or our measuring stick. Number three, seek the royal law. Here we get down to the nitty gritty. How do we avoid falling into this sin of showing favoritism and partiality to people? If you really fulfill the royal law according to Scripture, you shall love your neighbor as yourself, he says in verse 8, you do well. So what is he saying? I believe what he's telling us is that love should be the motivator of all our decision making. I'm going to seize upon that person because I love that person. Why do I love that person? Because Jesus loved that person. God loves that person. And Jesus died for that person. If I'm going to seize on to someone, I'm going to seize on to them because God loves them and I love them. Jesus said, when he was confronted by the Pharisees, what's the greatest commandment? The Pharisees said to him, he said, love the Lord your God with all your heart, your mind, and your soul. And I add another one to that. Love your neighbor as yourself. 
When we live, and that's why James says, live the royal law of love. When we live that way, we are no longer bent to begin to judge people by how they look, how they act, what political party they're a part of, or anything else. Judgment disappears. Love takes its place. That's how we can avoid this idea of showing partiality and favoritism. And finally, number four, mercy triumphs over judgment. Verse 10 points out that failing to keep just one of the laws makes us guilty of the whole law. Remember he says that in there? He says the same person who said, do not commit a murder, do not commit adultery, do not covet, do not, do not. It's the same person who also, if the person then says, well, I didn't murder, I didn't, and, and I grew up in a home like this. My father, I used to say to him, Dad, and, and, and I was not raised in a Christian home, we all know that, I was not, that was not my deal. But my dad said, my dad used to say to me, well, I don't break any of the commandments. And I'm like, okay. Um, and I'm not going to go down that road. So anyway, and, and I'm not here to judge because I love my dad. All right? And so, but yet, if I don't murder, I don't kill. But if I covet my neighbor's house or covet what my neighbor has, guess what? I'm guilty of all of them. Okay? That's why we can't fulfill the law. It's grace. It's mercy. It's the love of God that allows us to be in that right standing with Him. Not because I obeyed all the laws. Because I won't. And James is saying the same thing here. If you just break one of the laws, if you show partiality, if you don't love that royal, that royal law of love, if you don't love, then you're guilty of all of them. We were at one time... Me, oh, sorry, Lee. Me, you, everyone, we at one time were guilty, yet God in His mercy did not judge us as we deserve. He loved us, He saw us, He did not take hold of a hold based on our outward appearances. He did it because of who we are on the inside and who He knew we could be. Think about that for a little bit. He knew that this dirty, rotten, drinking, drugging, smoking, whatever, kid, would be something else, or could be something else someday. If you'd have judged me by how you saw me, you wouldn't want anything to do with me. Maybe you still don't, I don't know. But uh, anyway, uh, he saw me for who I could be. He sees all of us for who we could be and who we can be. He doesn't see us for how we dress, how we look, how we, how we, how we, you know, are not perfect. He looks beyond. And he asks us to be the same. He asks us to do the same. Don't show partiality. Don't judge. Don't give, um, you know, don't, don't show favoritism, uh, for what it can, for, for, thinking that somehow, for me, I can get something out of this. 
Again, we were all guilty at one time, yet God in his mercy did not judge us as we deserved. When that train that B.T. Roberts was riding reached its destination, uh, the uh, African-American men and women who Roberts had stood up for uh, gathered around him. And according to accounts, they began to sing to Roberts a most beautiful song, it was said. It turns out that these young African-American men and women were the Jubilee Singers of Fisk University. The singing group had won international acclaim, introducing white audiences to Negro spirituals like Steal Away and Swing Low, Sweet Chariot. What beautiful songs go unsung and unheard when we seize upon only the surface of things. What beautiful songs go unsung and unheard when we seize only on the surface of things. What deep gifts and abundant graces are missed when we fail to embrace everyone, rich, poor, black, white, Democrat, Republican, male, female, as those who are created in the image of God. May God help us to not show partiality. May God help us to not show favoritism and to seize only upon things and especially people by how they look or how they act. May we see in them what God sees. And the only way we can do that is if we're motivated by love. The same love that brings us here today. Let's pray. Father, we thank you for this day. We thank you for your word. I know James isn't, a, isn't a, always a book that we jump to because it, uh, it's just, just sometimes it's kind of hard to get a hold of. But thank you, Father, for opening it up to us today. To allowing us to uh, get into it a little bit. And by no way we've exhausted it. By no way have we treated it in its completeness. But that it may help us as we live out our lives, as we go from this place today, as we move out into our daily routines and, and, and weekly routines, may we understand that your desire is for us to act as you would act, that the royal law of love would motivate us in our relationships and our contacts with our fellow man, We're under attack, constantly under attack. And as that song says, they will know we are Christians by our love. May we each endeavor to make that our theme. We ask these things in Jesus' name. Amen.